From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Tenzener. On this podcast, we discuss topics near and far from personal finance. Any questions or comments, I can be reached at mark.tenzener at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Well, obviously, we are not lacking for market news of late, and I've tried to stay in front of you with webinars and podcasts, keeping you informed as the market evolves. But I thought today we'd step out of the day-to-day volatility of the market for a more general discussion on a hot topic in the investing world today, and that's ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing. And to do that, I brought back in senior investment strategist at Bernstein, Roosevelt Bowman. Roosevelt, thanks for joining Mark, it is always good to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, Roosevelt. So let's start with a basic first question. And for those listeners who want to get more in depth and know ESG, don't worry, we will get there. But Roosevelt, how do you or how do we or how does the market define ESG investing? Sure. You know, I think the way the market defines ESG investing is really focusing kind of in each of those letters that you have in the beginning, environmental, social and government governance and trying to understand how can the investment make a real impact and also avoid some of the quote unquote bad actors across different sectors. So, you know, in a nutshell, that's what you're trying to accomplish. How can you improve and address some of those problems? And you also obviously avoid those companies or municipalities that are contributing to some of those existing challenges. When when you say problems or challenges, when we initially buy a stock or often when we buy a stock, the, the challenge might be for the company, how do I deal with the supply chain or, or how do I become more profitable or how does my management get right. better so that I can get the stock price up? When, when you say problems or challenges, can you speak more about what, what we're talking about when we say those challenges or problems? Yes, yeah, certainly. So I mean, I think I'll start environmental is probably the easiest one to kind of define clearly. And we think about companies that are either contributing to potentially global warming or kind of undue waste in certain areas. You know, I think that's an example of kind of some of those challenges. When you think about social and governance, I would argue that's a little bit harder to define, but typically you're thinking about companies that potentially are addressing issues of inequality where maybe CEO pay greatly as some unbelievable multiple of the employers where there is sort of a, an unequal or unfair distribution of the profits. And then in social is kind of, well, how active is the government, excuse me, how active is the company in kind of maybe offsetting government policy that is detrimental to the employees or the broader population? The industry uses this catch-all phrase ESG investing, and you can look up ESG mutual funds or money managers. Is there a like formal qualification to be ESG, or does every money manager, asset manager get to define it as they want and then slap a label on that strategy calling it ESG? Yeah, you know, Mari, it's a really good question. I think the, you know, unfortunately, we're still in this nascent period of ESG investing. So you do have situations where companies kind of can slap on an ESG label or a green label and say, you know what, we, we adhere to these principles and we're, we're under this style of investing without actually meeting those standards. I think as a good starting point, it's usually companies that are aligning themselves with the UN sustainability goals. You know, that's a a really good, I think, foundation and, and at least one way of filtering companies that are serious about ESG from those that are maybe just 
trying to ride the wave of momentum and, and kind of slapping a sticker on there without any real follow-up or commitment. So, so I, I think that's a good tip I'm going to highlight. If you're looking for an ESG portfolio, Roosevelt, it sounds like one of the pieces of advice would be to look at the literature or ask the asset or money management, hey, do you adhere to the UN sustainability goals? That would at least be a like a ticket to entry. Absolutely. I think that's a great way of putting it. You know, I think it's it's a way of, of kind of delineating between those companies that are, you know, doing the window dressing and maybe have some real commitment. So in the old days, in the old days, I guess I mean five years ago, um, I think <laughs> ESG often got lumped in with a word you used, green. Like, okay, if I have an ESG portfolio, that's the same thing as a green portfolio. So I'm going to have a portfolio of like wind and solar. That's not where we are today, correct? Or is that still a subset of ESG? How do we think about green ESG? Are they the same? Are they not? Has it evolved? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think the way you put it is correct. It's a subset, right? So that environmental part of it, whether you're talking about emissions reduction or kind of carbon capture and utilization, waste management, like I referred to before, that would be the green part of it. But I, I do think the S and the G or the other parts too, kind of, you know, is the company operating in an ethical manner? Do all employees have the same kind of opportunity to ascend and kind of grow their careers? Or, you know, is there some inefficient allocation of labor because of prejudice and other biases? You know, and then in kind of that governance, right? How is the company run? Um, is there kind of a commitment to being a, you know, quote unquote, good actor and kind of adhering to some of those principles that we alluded to in terms of people, all the employees having equal opportunity and, and avoiding some of the pitfalls of the past where it was clear that only a couple people controlled the entire firm and, and it was impossible to break in and the people that control the firm weren't necessarily chosen by their performance. So I think that's where it's really expanded. It's not just wind, solar power and, and kind of replacement. It's thinking about kind of that governance and, and social aspect as well. When people would think about ESG, <clears throat> I, in my experience, one of the barriers was often, hey, if I'm going to do ESG, because for whatever reason, I, I feel aligned with it. I'm not suggesting everyone who listens to this is going to be, but there'll be a subset of listeners who will say, that sounds great, but, and the but is usually, what is it going to cost me from an investment perspective, not fees, but from a return perspective or risk perspective, if I choose to go down the ESG path? How do you think about the cost associated with ESG versus a traditional portfolio? Yeah, certainly. You know, what's interesting is that that question comes up all of the time. And I kind of refer to even though ESG has all this momentum and kind of buzz around it, we're still in the early stages. And so many investors assume that there, you have to accept some sort of discount for your returns. And what we found is that's really not the case. You know, your returns are likely to be different, right? And I'll explain a little bit why in a moment. And this year, the start of this year has been a perfect example of that. So I think the return streams are different, but not necessarily worse. There isn't an automatic discount someone has to assume as an investor if you're going to be uh, allocating money to ESG. And I think there's a couple reasons for that in terms of different, but not worse. Number one, when we think about ESG and kind of solving some of these challenges, right? One of them, you know, you can think about kind of uh, access to financial 
systems as one of the, the kind of challenges, right? 30% of the world is underbanked or unbanked, meaning you just don't have access to a bank account. You know, you're not really going to solve that problem or challenge of access to financial services with a bunch of brick and mortar branches. That's the old way. It's going to be a new way. It's going to be innovative. It's going to be mobile payments. It's going to be, you know, digital investing in finance. And so when you think about solving that problem, it does lead you more towards technology and innovation. And, you know, quite frankly, that's quite appealing for long-term investors, but you're certainly going to be leaning towards that and away from some of the fossil fuels and investments of that sort. Obviously, to start the year, energy has done tremendously well. It's the only thing that's done well. So for those investors in ESG, yes, your return stream over this short period of time is different than maybe investing in a broad index. Uh, but over the long run, you're not, you're not giving up return. And I think part of it is, number one, investing in some of those innovative companies that gives great upside potential. But also on the downside in terms of the risk management, what we found is that those companies with stronger ESG scores that have more diverse voices on the board, not just in kind of the, the simple way of culture, but just in a lot of different ways, they've actually managed risk a lot better during the 2020 big downturn in the stock market and were able to kind of protect capital and have, you know, a really, quite frankly, a much better plan for uh, kind of protecting profits and staying in business and some companies that didn't. So I think both from an upside and a risk management perspective, those companies with better ESG scores, you know, provide a pretty good opportunity. So, you know, we would say that it, it's different, but not worse. You mentioned if you're, if you're a company who's trying to deal with um, underbanked populations of the world, so, so technology is going to be part of that, or you're dealing with climate change and broadly speaking, technology is going to be a part of that solution. Those are all things that you don't fix overnight. And I think we'd agree, right? So does that mean if, if you're an ESG investor, you should, or you have to have a longer time horizon, or am I just thinking about that the wrong way? No, I do think that that's partially true. I mean, some of the issues will not be solved overnight. But I do think both from the value of the impact and the investment return, that incremental benefit can be really big and impressive even in a short period of time, right? So to give you an example, think about a company that we owned in one of our portfolios, Williams-Sonoma. You know, you can sometimes have these kind of underappreciated metrics that can really return value. They had tremendous kind of employee experience scores, right? And so you might think, okay, that sounds great, but why do I necessarily care as an investor? Well, it's kind of part of that strong governance. And during 2020, they were able to retain employees much better than a lot of other firms and, and really were able to outperform and return great, um, you know, really, really good returns to our investors for being in that stock. And they were also really outperform their competitors. So I do think that's an example sometimes of underappreciated metrics and strong governance where it's incremental and it's not the entire problem being solved. It's not the entire industry and every, you know, kind of retail employee is being treated well, but that incremental improvement in that one company was, you know, really great for investor returns and, and really good for impact as well. You use the term score. I'm thinking about that in a few different ways. I think that could be a really interesting word to play with here. Um, typically, investors score 
for lack of a better term, or, or benchmark more technically, their portfolio against in the US, the S&P 500. If you're an ESG portfolio, or you're an investor in an ESG portfolio, how do you think about your return? I think you alluded to this a bit as compared to the S&P 500, because you're going to have these different uh, sector weightings and company weightings. So is the S&P 500 appropriate? Do you have to accept more variance? How, how, how does the investor think about that? Yeah, certainly. I, you know, I think we're, we'll move to the point where we have a much better benchmark. I would say the S&P is, you know, diplomatically an imperfect solution because you are going to have companies in there that naturally are going to be excluded from, you know, an ESG portfolio, or I should say are very unlikely to be in an ESG portfolio. So I think it's imperfect as a benchmark. So as an investor, you are accepting uh, a bit more variance. But, you know, again, I think the if it aligns with your goals and we understand that kind of upside opportunity also with some better downside protection, then, you know, that I think is a, a really good outcome over the long run. You also talked about scoring the impact when you were talking about the Williams-Sonoma example. Um, maybe specifically to Bernstein, is there a way that you score that impact for the clients or in the portfolio, right? So the, the first scorecard for an investor, maybe not the first, but a scorecard investor is, how did I do, right? Did I make money? Did I lose money? The related second right. scorecard is, did I make money or lose money relative to the S&P in my example, right? And I'll accept it's an imperfect benchmark, but that's probably the second way they're going to score the portfolio. Um, when you report, do you, do you also score the impact? Can you score the impact? Can you report the impact? How do you think about scoring, using that word, the, the ESG or the impact in the portfolio? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, we do. I mean, I think both in the equity and bond portfolios, and I think it starts with the baseline, right? So the baseline would be avoiding the negative characteristics. No surprise there, you know, kind of private prisons, um, guns, defense, right? But that that's just your basic level of, of exclusionary scoring, if you will. I think the next step is then, okay, what impact is the company making and how significant is it? And so that's where I think the second level scoring is really important in not only saying, okay, what impact's being made, but what's the degree of the impact and how wide is it? And I think that's where, you know, both on the stock and bond portfolio is really important. And I think, you know, to use an example from the bond portfolios, one of the projects that we were involved in where we bought a significant portion of the bond issue was this Newark uh, clean water project where they were replacing pipes to get rid of the the lead pipes, obviously. There, the reason we thought that was such an attractive project is certainly you can go into certain situations and have a kind of band-aid solution. There is a problem. We're kind of addressing it at the, you know, after there's already been damage. This was appealing to us because you're really addressing the problem at the root cause. And if you're able to impact these outcomes for, you know, the outcomes of people, both children and adults, for many years going forward, that's tremendous impact for us. It's not, you know, if we think about almost like three layers, one would be avoiding negative behaviors, then would be, is there a positive contribution? And then the last would be, is there a big, lasting, persistent positive contribution? This bond issue fit into that top tier of persistent positive contribution. And that's why it was so appealing to us. Um, not to do a bit of a commercial here, but when when the teams report ESG to clients, they're also able to give us give metrics like 
what's the carbon emissions of the ESG portfolio we own versus the S&P 500? What's the diversity inclusion metrics of the portfolio right. versus the benchmark? So there, there are ways that we can you know, really score, hey, if you own the S&P 500, this is how you look on these ESG metrics. If you own this basket of securities with us, here's the performance, here's the risk, and, and here's how you're scoring on those ESG. So it's a, it's a, it's a cool way of, of kind of scoring it in the, on the, what I'll call the third level. But you, you, you've talked about bonds and I, I'm remiss because I, I think I've framed this all through equity and you're right to bring up bond. So we should talk about ESG investing, at least for your team's result, is not just a stock thing, right? You, you can, you can um, utilize ESG throughout the research process, throughout all different types of securities, correct? Absolutely. I mean, it really, I think most people, like you mentioned, assume that it's just kind of potentially an equity story. But we found that on the bond side, that similar kind of underappreciation for certain factors and, and inefficiencies reside as well. And that there are plenty of municipal issues where the bonds are tied to projects that can have that really big impact where, you know, you can get value. You know, typically when you think about the bond side, to no surprise, you may be accepting a little bit more in terms of interest rate risk, that the bonds have longer maturities and that they are a little bit lower in credit quality. But, you know, we would argue that municipals, kind of broadly, you're overpaying for a high credit quality. So there's, you know, some attractiveness there. And also, we're talking about slightly lower credit quality. It's not as if we're going into the, the kind of bottom of the barrel or anything like that. It's not the junk market. It is not. It is not. No, it's but it's important to note, right? But it's important to note, municipals as an asset class rarely, rarely, rarely default. And for the additional risk, quote unquote, associated with these bonds or lower credit and longer maturity, to be fair, right, you, you get compensated in the form of higher yield. Exactly. I mean, that's precisely so it's, it's, how it works. Well, no, I was just going to say, in a world where people are, are, are hungry for yield, that can be an attractive way to, to, to hit their ESG metric, but also get their yield metrics. Exactly. And especially in, in municipals where, you know, we would argue you're getting compensated nicely for that incremental risk, which in a lot of other kind of bond sectors, it's hard to make that argument given, you know, kind of how flat these yield curves are. Um. Last question, Roosevelt, we talked about the fixed income, we've touched on equity, but on the equity side at, at Bernstein, is this just done through mutual funds? Can you have individual stock on a prior podcast, uh, podcast excuse me, we talked about tax management and tax harvesting. Like, it, is this fully integrated and, and, and maybe, you know, the one or two minute overview of, of how it's baked into equity portfolios at Bernstein? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it is both in that fund and the individual security form. And for us, we're, we're continuing to kind of expand how we think about ESG investing and, and providing it in more ways than even before. And so to your point, you know, one of the, the strategies, the kind of premium after tax harvesting, we're now looking to have that customized where clients have come to us and said, you know what, I love this strategy. I want to be able to harvest losses as kind of a main way of generating alpha and making money, but I don't want to own some of these companies. You know, we went back and said, great, let's put that same kind of screen and kind of higher level of delineation on top of this passive strategy to provide something where 
It's still focused on tax harvesting. It's still a passive strategy, but it excludes these companies that are unappealing to people who want to invest in a sustainable way. Roosevelt, this was super helpful. I think this is, you know, the right 101 class on ESG. And for those who are interested more on the topic, feel free to reach out to me or Roosevelt and his team. To our listeners more broadly, feel free to email me at mark.penzner at bernstein.com or call me at 212-969-6655 for any questions or comments on this podcast or any other related topics. And make sure to like us or review this podcast wherever you listen to it. Until next time. <laughs>